Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. I'm James, and this is Sam and John, the designers of Force of Virtue Games by Masterstroke Games. How are you gentlemen doing today? Amazing. Oh, thank you. All right. Uh, now, I think I was uh, sent uh, your game, and it was sold to me as kind of a historic period piece here and both of you are game designers but before you can start talking about game you have to give us the um, elevator pitch about your bona fides how did you get into miniature war gaming sam do you want to go first uh sure here we go um basically uh we started off um through the the regular channel aka games workshop and uh, we started first with the uh old middle earth strategy battle game and from there, um, kind of started to spread out to other things. Uh, tried like uh, the was it Warhammer Ancient Battles? Tried that for a bit, um, and eventually we, because both of us are interested in uh, historical fencing, which comes from um, historical treaties from the 15th century, and so a lot of our historical focus kind of started to converge on the 15th century, and we saw that there are not many rule sets for uh, for that era, and especially not for skirmish. Um, so we kind of, seeing that there wasn't anything there, we had to make something. Um, at first it was just for ourselves, and um, we kind of started to drill down into how to do that, kind of based on our uh, historical research um, and based on uh, Kind of how we saw uh, different dynamics from the um, from the fencing treaties. Yeah, so I mean, even before Games Workshop, it, yeah, it was also kind of like we were in Kansas at that time, and there wasn't really any games around. So we spent a lot of time trawling free websites with free rule sets, and just trying everything under the sun um, mm. with Airfix models, um, and then we kind of got in Switzerland. We got into the kind of games workshop side of it and then we started yeah and as sam says that was kind of like during our te teenage years and there we kind of started focusing a lot more on the historical fencing side of it you know riding horses doing kind of a little bit of live show and stunt work and kind of like doing some but it was always for us the game was always a way of kind of like almost our research notes as we were researching like small unit combat dynamics going on finding action reports from like 15th century memoirs on how combat worked and understanding also the broader context of the fencing we were studying. How did it fit in the mounted combat and everything into kind of um, a broader understanding of like how small unit worked. And it started to also kind of be interesting because you see a very different focus in in 15th century descriptions of fights than than like 18th or 19th century it's all very psychological it's all very based on personalities and you know you don't <clears throat> you hear a lot of times things like you know due to an overabundance of um, audacity they chased and pursued the enemy and then became disordered and then got it uh were in turn destroyed themselves or they were far they were lack they were lacking on audacity so they didn't pursue or you know it's a lot more kind of psychological and we wanted some so and so that we needed to kind of have a way to model that and we were quite interested in kind of like how all these things might fit together and it, games are just kind of for us like i see games as like 
you know, a model with move research paper with moving pieces in a way, because like it's a lot easier to explain dynamics through games than it is just saying, you know, otherwise you have to write, well, if this happens and this changes, but otherwise this happens, but this doesn't happen. And it's just a, a reactive model that's a lot easier to work with. All right. So based on your description like that period, and when I was reading your rule book, I think that leads into how would you describe the universe of the game? Because you you picked a very specific city and what really came across is you didn't I don't think you ever spelled it out, but that Italian word for Tua, like that medieval concept of um what virtue embodied, not just morality, but also how that translates into like physical power. Like God moves through you, through your virtue, and that's what allows you to either conquer or run away. And um, so why don't you tell people the setting of the game, which I I found fascinating. So, yeah, like <clears throat> the game in general can and, can and will spread to all aspects of the 15th century and you know, uh, inshallah, and if people are, if people like it enough, you know, we can even go to like um, India where Portuguese are having smackdowns with Hindu uh, forces. But like um, at the moment, the first place we set it is, is Rome and specifically kind of 1492 during the kind of ascendance of the Borgias, because it's, uh, you know, it's just such a fascinating place and time and you can easily scale back a little bit or go a little forward. But at this point, Rome, Renaissance Rome, is this tiny little uh, kind of city of of, mo of increasingly modern Renaissance palaces surrounded by miles and miles of Roman ruins. You know, you have like, you know, shepherds uh, kind of corralling sheep and cows in, you know, old mansions of, of Roman emperors and there's temples and it's just nuts. And you have guys going out and digging up relics and fighting over them because the rel Roman relics at this time fetch amazing prices. With pilgrims coming in and getting you know stolen and you have all these mercenary warlords that rule the different areas of the city and they define most of the politics and most of papal politics at this time has been playing the two main mercenaries' families off against each other, the Orsini and the Colonna. And um, the main thing about the Borgia is they decided they didn't want to do that anymore. They were going to take them both on, and they were going to reconquer the areas around Rome and make Rome a kind of a, a feudal, uh, a strong feudal power that could exercise rights over the area other than just kind of like getting bossed around. And anytime there was a papal election, things kind of turned into a bloodbath in the in, in, in the streets as people tried to, you know, influence the election with any modes, uh, means possible. So you have a lot of freedom for small unit combat. And of course, every single monarch and imperial power from England, the Tartars and the Mongols had operatives in the city doing stuff to try and force politics well, yeah, I, have, I, I have to admit i was reading um when i was reading the book you lead with like um the description of different districts of the city at the beginning and i thought oh um let me just gloss through this real quick 
and get to the rules so I can get this done. I have to admit, I read like half the city districts <laughs> before I looked. It's like, I'm running out of time here. I got to put this down. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 crazy. You don't. It's like one of those truth is stranger than fictions. It's like if more if more time. But if Mordheim was also the political center of uh, of the Warhammer universe, it's like the Grand Theogenist lived in Mordheim. <laughs> I, I did get that Mordheim sense from it when I was reading it. I'm sorry, yeah. Sam, you were going to say? No, no, it's um, absolutely. And we do want to kind of feed into that uh, 15th century expanded universe aspect. Um as we kind of we start in Italy, um, but as as Jack was saying, we've got the the um, one of the brothers of the Ottoman Sultan at the time was a guest of the papal court, and there were many yes, letters basically sure. of the Sultan telling telling them, "All right, we can do a deal. Just give me back my brother so I can kill him and remove this threat to my throne." And the Pope was always kind of like, "Yeah, maybe we will, maybe we won't." Um, so there's assassination plots against uh its brother there's um plots with uh a cypriot queen who was uh uh was exiled from her uh from the island there's so many different threads connecting to rome and connecting back out that we just thought it was a perfect place to go and there's the domus aurea which is an absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating thing where like nero's golden palace um is is buried under a hill just how things have played out it's gotten covered by turf and everything mm. and so his you know his luxury golden palace and a shepherd just happens to just drop through uh uh the ground into this palace and by the time it's explored there's in it anymore huh but like in this time exactly kind of like this period you you find they they find it and they're just going through this underground dungeon of you know roman reliefs and artifacts and stuff and that's where the word grotesque comes from where like they're going through and by firelight they see all these kind of like roman paintings and everything happening so of course there there, there must have been a, a there probably was a german uh, there may be at some point a a a, cam a small campaign booklet for the the Freisinniger Johannes, the independent Jones, and the uh, and the Landsknecht sent by uh, Emperor Maximilian to recover important artifacts from this uh, Domus Aurea before it gets fully explored. But you know, there's a lot of fun stuff we can do, and like as Sam says, we're starting here and expanding out. You know, as far as people will allow us. Um, so yeah, right now there's a lot of different things in in the works if things happen the right way. So. Oh. How would you describe the theme of this game? I think the the, the theme of the game um, again relates very much to to the period in that this is a transitional period from feudal to kind of uh, early modern. So you at the same time have these um, very traditional kind of noble, almost Arthurian aspiring knights and the feudal old feudal ways of doing things. And you also have these new, this new gunpowder, this gunpowder technology that is now really starting to take off. Um, you have, uh, you have Renaissance ideals and humanism, along with you know a lot of which also go into witchcraft and magic. The city of Basel hired a magician who prom who 
for a large amount of money because he said he could disable cannons from a distance. And there is a siege we're working on where that's actually given that there was a magical rite performed that caused rain that disabled bombards and influenced and uh, won the siege. Um, so there's also like a lot of this esoteric going on. And you have also a political clash between the, the the growing free cities, which are very Republican and anarchist in ideals, and these princes that are consolidating power and wanting to crush the freedom out of the nobles and these free cities. So what the, the, you are a small unit commander commanding, um, building his own small warband to do all these clan, kind of small missions, reconnaissance, disabling cannons, um, assassinations, gathering intelligence, but you are trying to build your warband using all these new and old technologies to make them most effective and figure out what works in this kind of new changing world and how to do it. So you're building, so it's, it's about very much about kind of like tailoring and building and then understanding how to use what you have to create an effect. Um, and mechanically, it's a lot about this ver these virtues, as you say, and like, to kind of explain in a more modern sense what, what what how they consider virtue, it's very very close to like in a lot of ways the modern Clausewitzian sense of will, like war being a a clash of of wills and morale. But the the medieval thinkers take it a step farther in that they that they have different kinds of will which will interact and and define how you act. I don't know if this answer makes any sense. No, I, I get where you're going with that. There's, we won't get into a sociological discussion about like the, you know, what happens to you is a result of your virtues. So it's like your, your morality plays out in the physical sense around you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that. yeah. The rich deserve to be rich because of their virtue the poor deserve to be poor and ugly because of their lack of virtue. And that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but there, there's, yeah, that, that's a very strong theme. Like, like it comes, a lot of this comes from, you know, uh, Machiavelli's con writings on virtue and is like, it's like virtue and fortune stand in opposition. So luck is huge in the medieval concept, you know, but you can kind of stand, stand against fortune with virtue if you do it right. And that's kind of why we wanted virtue to be a luck mitigation mechanic in the game. You can't completely get rid of it, but you can mitigate it. Yeah. So let's talk about the mechanics of the game because it you do have this mechanic of where you have virtue as a resource, and that virtue is spent to mitigate the effects of fortuna or the dice. The dice are really your luck in the game. And so you're spending your, your virtue to change the results of the dice. But over time, you're going to run out of either luck or virtue. <laughs> so how would you describe the mechanics, like the turn structure and um, how the game operates? Yeah, I, I, yeah, sure. Uh, here we go. So it's uh, generally an alternating activation structure where you have uh, your officers. We call them capos is like the, the head. Uh, in literary in Italian, uh, like head of a family, head of a head of a unit, and they use their virtue to uh, do different actions. And essentially, you can pick how many virtue you use, and that influences how many dice you roll. And it's like a roll many, pick one. 
So uh, most units can say roll three dice a turn and they have two actions. So most of the time you can do one action with two dice. So you roll two dice, pick the better, and then one action with one dice and then just roll one dice and you see what you get. Depending on how you roll, you can get a, you can just get a result. You can also get a critical uh, success or a critical fail. Obviously, if you roll many, pick one, then you can pick the better die so you have a better chance of getting a critical and avoiding a crit fail. Um, depending on the crit success, and this is where we get into the different types of virtue, you can get different results. So say if you use uh, prudence to move, and you get a critical success, then your men will be moving from cover to cover. Uh, they'll be uh, covering their advance, so they'll be harder to hit. Whereas if you roll with um, speed, then obviously your men will be much faster, so they can speed forward and get to grips with the enemy quicker. Obviously, there are also different types of crit fail. So yeah. if you crit fail with speed, then your men will gas out, they'll get disordered, and they'll uh, start to lose virtue, uh, similarly if they've been attacked. Um, if you roll prudence and crit fail, then your men will take the um, prudent option of not wanting to engage and actually move away from the enemy. Uh, because actually the best way to not die in a fight is don't get in a fight. Um, but um, you can uh, start to uh, influence this, but obviously you choose what virtues you want to use and you choose before the game, when you build your officers and you build your warband, uh, what virtues you want to have the uh, you want to have. So you can have a very prudent officer, and obviously you know he'll be very prudent. You can do prudent things with him, but you know that he uh, he can only do those things. So if you need him to get to grips with the enemy quickly and route them, he's probably not going to be able to do it. Whereas if you load up someone with a bunch of audacity and speed, then yes, they will definitely get in there and they will definitely put on the pressure, but they won't be able to do much else. Or you could load up one officer with all of the virtue, but then you only have one very good officer. And if he gets shot in the head, then yeah, bad luck. Okay. Uh, we'll get into gang construction later, but when I was reading the rules, there seemed to be this. I think that was the biggest thing to uh, try to grasp on the game is that you had virtue could be spent to do multiple things. And depending mm -hmm. on what virtue you used to do would affect like you said, the critical success, the success, or the critical fail. So it's like you're always playing. looks like the game's designed to play the balancing act mm -hmm. of like um, your play style. So you could customize a force and a gang to play to how you want, you like to play. But depending on like the scenario um, and the objectives of the scenario um, and the terrain, you could actually see yourself running into situations of like, I'm not really suited hmm. to carry out this mission. Yeah. Um, but when you're doing that, something I noticed is um, I know uh YouTube fence. Um now I don't know if it's rapier or epi, but uh, or foil, but uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh hmm. you it seemed like you're trying to get around some of the old line drawing manuals of the time period of like how people fought. So when you were designing this game, were you looking to um, as a simulation game for how small unit combat were done, or are you going for more of the cinematic um, outcomes? This is the uh, old question of um, chain of command versus bolt action. <laughs> chain of command is tr we're trying to simulate a very particular theater at a particular time where bolt action is 
I were Warhammer 40k redressed into mm. like World War II uniforms. Where are we trying to go with that? I think that the skeleton of it is um is an uh, is a pretty abstract. I'd say an abstracted simulation on a skeleton is this is a kind of a the skeleton level right in that um everything that you, you everything if you understand the tactics and everything it's all there you know how combat the basic we don't get into like specific strikes specific angles you know parry repulse versus this it's just stripped down to you know focusing on de- are you how much are you de- how much are you investing in the that action how much are you investing in defense versus attack in that action? Because combat is usually, you know, hand-to-hand combat is usually divided into, you know, I can focus on defense or offense, you know, I can jab or I can cross and they'll have different um, implications. Um, so we're not going into like details, but then you have different, how many cards you add and which cards will bring a very cinematic will bring, bring a more cinematic angle, arguably. Like, for example, ca- a card like Copious Alcohol, which makes people with audacity crit fail on one, on results of one or two and crit succeed on five or sixes. Is that simulationist or cinematic? It's simulationist in that you had lots of people going to... In, <laughs> lots of accounts of people getting in fights and going into battles drunk. It's cinematic and that is kind of funny. <laughs> right? So it's... <laughs> So it's kind of that's a hard, you know, um, is somewhat is somewhat is it are your knights uh, moving forward with audacity to the edge of the doorway to later the next turn be able to um, charge out and attack and get to grips with the gunners in a safe way. But instead rolling two ones on a two audacity move and then just running straight out towards the gunners is, is, is that simulationist or cinematic? You have, you have examples of stuff like that happening in, in, in memoirs, but it's also kind of cinematic. So that's kind of a hard one for us to... Personally, I find that a hard one to answer because, like, I I, I would say we probably... You can kind of go which way you want. Some cards are very straight-laced, very simulationist. Some cards are very, um, very abstract, very cinematic. I'm sorry, what... The card copious alcohol. I don't know if you have the term in your country, but uh, here we call it beer muscles. <laughs> oh, boy. With, a, with enough beer, you think you're stronger and faster than what you really are. So yes. I, I that card makes perfect sense to me there. Um, but when you assemble um, your gangs, what what is the model count you're looking at? Uh, so are, are you doing like small elite mobs? Do you have like a, a horde? gang um and is this like individual model control or like squad based because mm-hmm. i'm yeah. particularly thinking about we didn't get into this but you have weapon ranges and mm-hmm. so there's actually a way where you can take halberders and stack them so like one halberder can reach over the other and like jab someone but hide behind his buddy mm-hmm. and uh so it's like Am I doing that with individual model control or is this like a squad stack action? How is this working? Like, what's the so, thought behind but, that? Yeah, so uh, in some ways, one, it's a method that might be most familiar to like from two factors. I think we lost John. On your turn, on your activation, you activate a, uh, one of these officers 
they then perform a specific one specific action like fight, move, shoot, reload. They then can and they get to tell everybody within their command range to do that thing, right? You roll dice individually, so like it would be an in, you roll the dice for the individual model attacking over the person. Um, but it's not like these six models are all part of this squad. It's like no, if I want Gianni and and Pietro to go over and join the other guy, I can they can go move over there and then they'll send them over there. Then they're under that guy's control. So you're it's a bit more specific. You can think think of it really as like. You activate your 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 officer. He yells some orders, and those orders then are done, right? Um, mm -hmm. So if that makes sense, but it's not like generally I'm activating one model at a at a time unless it's a capo, which I just want to do one specific thing. Okay. Uh, and the, so the model count is like one to twenty, I'd say. So you could have one like a. Uh... Your Renaissance John Wick character. Yes, yes, yes. Those are uh, very fun to play. They, they, don't, um, you're, you're kind of like one man army. Um, that they, 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 they're not necessarily the most, you know, strategically, you know, it's not the most powerful way of playing the game because you have to do objectives and stuff like that. But it's very fun and can be quite scary. Well, I, I appreciate it because one thing we haven't talked about is when. When I saw these rules, I instantly thought of the uh, series Borgia and yeah. uh, the eldest son out there. Yes. Who was like, did not want to be in the priesthood because unlike his yes. younger brother, he could actually fight. And so yes. he would go yes. do those scenes of like, what, take on four guys at once. Oh, yeah. And, like he totally. assembled his he assembled his hit squad of the third sons of minor nobles to go mm -hmm. around. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Like, there's one example that that's funny from the example of Ben, uh, the biography of Benvenuto Cellini, who was, and he was basically a walking D and D party. Uh, every single D and D uh, murder hobo trope he he went for. But his brother, he, and he, he was a gold gold um, smith. But his brother became a mercenary, and at one point, so he, in a, they got drunk in a tavern, and some guy said, "You don't have the guts to attack." bishop so-and-so he has a bodyguard of 50 people and Cellini's brother went yes i do and grabbed his mate and uh a halberd and a and a big you know montante a 500 200 sword and they just charge this group of 50 mercenaries defending the bishop and they get them to run and it all goes fine until one of the uh one of the gunners panics and misfires into Cellini's brother's leg and kills him It's like, oh, yeah, that, I mean, it'd be, be too ridiculous in a Warhammer novel, but it's perfectly historical. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, given how you customize the game, how much? I'm trying to think, how much can you customize your force? Because we've talked about like halberdiers, um, but how do you do like weapons loadouts armor how much customization can you have in your force and we've talked about the capo like how can i customize the capo mm -hmm. well so it largely depends on um the different decks you have available to you so when you build your warband you can pick different uh basically groups of cards to to take from so um, these are other nation decks 
um, which is like, you know, Swiss, French, Italian, uh, Spanish in our, or in LandsConnect in our uh, current configuration. And uh, then character decks, which are uh, to add a bit of flavor. So you've got Born to Battle for that yeah feudal old family feeling. You've got Renaissance Man for the kind of new humanist, classicist, um, scientist, all meshed together uh, element. Um, so when you uh, customize your force, then you can pick, basically you pick say a mercenary card and that would be just three dudes with halberds. And then yes, you can add a heavy armor card to give them all uh, half plate armor. And then if you want to make them even more killy, you can say, okay, we they need some anti-armor capability. So I'm gonna give them special weapons and then they have pole axes, uh, which can you know use to uh, uh, kill other models with uh, armor easier and wound them easier. Um, and then you've got various uh, other what we call honor cards, which are um, training, discipline, all kind of um, extra buffs that you can give them uh, depending on the nation. So for example, the Swiss really specialize in this. You can give your troops, uh, say, raised to war, which uh, Swiss troops are renowned as uh, very as being trained to fight from a very early age because um, their only export really was mercenaries for a very long time. Um, there's a account from a cardinal who eventually became a pope. I forget his name at the moment, but he was traveling through Switzerland and he got up in the morning and saw that there were all these six-year-olds with tiny pikes just drilling on the square. And he was like, who, who are these people? What, what the hell is going on here? No wonder they're all psycho psychos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, depending on the different um, nations that you have access to and different decks that you have access to, you can absolutely upgrade your troops in different directions, um, uh, whether that be in terms of equipment or in terms of uh, kind of yeah, discipline and abilities. So yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but then that gives you the ability to um, what is it? Roll to other nationalities, like so. If you wanted to set this in like paris or hamburg or london you could have like your irish deck your welsh yes. deck your scottish your highlander yes. your lowlander decks yes those are all those are those are you just named a fair a few decks that are currently in development um uh, <laughs> but yeah and then but that brings also uh, there's also then the scenario deck which uh, that brings it to you know we're currently we have a scenario deck for like rome in the time of the borgias but yes if we we're actually now working on scenario decks for like a sea, the siege of Gradara, which we can talk about later. But yeah, and the other thing about the customization is like, um, I, I, I'm very much like I like the modeling and painting side of it, and it always used to frustrate me sometimes when I play games where I I'm painting this guy and he's jumping off a rock and he's like got his weapon in the air and he looks really badass and ferocious, and then when I get him on the table. All this time, extra time I spent, like putting a, an, a, a severed head in his hand and all that stuff, that, that, that's not really reflected in, in the game. And, you know, he just ends up running away a bunch because I'm bad at rolling dice. So, you know, all this, so a lot of it is like also cards to kind of like, yes, I, you know, you know, uh, trophies. Okay. You know, so you've actually got that stuff that you like to model on the model. And if you want this, you know, audacious, badass speed guy, he, you can just give him the cards to do that. That'll now be his personality. Um, and it's reflected mechanically in the game because, you know, I, 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 I like that. Um, 
Well, when you were designing the game, what did you conceive of like the runtime of the game to be? Like you sat down, yeah. ready to roll dice. How long were you planning for a single game to run? We had a very clear design brief that we made for ourselves that I had to pe- play in gen- uh, a normal size game or a smaller uh, should pay- play between 30 minutes and an hour. Um, and the better you get, the f- you know, even larger games like 16 card games, if you build up slowly using the campaign system where you're adding cards as you and getting used to your force, it'll still usually stay within that one hour frame. So we wanted something that was really easy to get into your, you know, war bands normally under 10 models, um, uh, 45 minutes and a two by two, two foot by two foot table or a three foot by three foot table. Two by two is more than more than fine usually. Um, we wanted something really accessible and really easy to do because you know we, we don't have the, the time or space ourselves for doing large games. I mean, if you if you have your own place and you know a large everything to do things, that's great. I also have don't have the focus for like you know making entire regiments of people pay, people that are here here. And I get very like, oh, I just read this one account. I want to do that. You know, it's like all of a sudden I've got three French knights with this one livery, and then read something else and like oh okay uh, oh those there's some badass balkan mercenaries i'll do that you know i was like well i i think that's you know why whenever they do medievals uh templar and hospital armies are so popular hmm. it's because it's like white and black <laughs> now how much of each one because you're right you try to do some of the especially the french shields and some of the barding there it's like leave a color out um but what were you seeing as the play area um is this a two by two a three by three game area or is it adjustable because that tends to affect time um in the game so So yeah generally generally for like smaller game uh, games so like you play a certain number of cards um that's how you make your forces like a 16 card game or a 10 card game so under a scene card game a two by two is is good you know that's fine that, that works um above that three by i you know i'd start looking at three by three it's also what you have but yeah the the it's generally two by two also because you know if you look at the math two by two is four square feet if you do a three by three that's nine square feet that's double the amount of square feet so then if you want to have a decent looking table with a, with you know a decent amount of terrain it's much easier to fill and make an interesting table at two by two than three by three. Okay. And uh, I do appreciate uh, there's one section in the book, as you describe each part of the city, I could get that that was an idea of this is the type of terrain you'll need to play in this city. Mm-hmm. And your comments there of like, you don't need, you know, Renaissance Italian buildings, which not... I don't know if you don't have that collection, it's tough to like, well, let me go find the yeah. MDF to do this. But it's like, hey, there's plenty of places that are just like shepherd hills with like ruins in them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just make an aqueduct and all of a sudden it, you know, some bit, bits of ruined aqueduct and all of a sudden it seems very Rome. Um, and also like, you know, if, if, you, if you only have, have like desert terrain, because normally you do desert or whatever, um, it's, you know, you had... 
merchant caravans going everywhere from China to India to, you know, starting South America at this point. And you had Kondachiris getting into fights with each other and everything. So, yeah, you can very easily start moving things around the world now. Um, German and German and Spanish mercenaries fighting each other, you know, jungles in southern India was something that happened. So, um, because, you know, if, if only one person comes back with, the, with you know, the, the location of where you can find these spices, then the profits go up. Yeah. Um, so is there, so discuss the campaign feature. So um, normally I ask, is there a campaign feature? But I think the way we've talked about this game, it's undoubtedly there's going to be a campaign feature uh, in the book. So are you recreating a narrative arc? Um, are you trying to replicate like a series of stories that came from the time period or like the television show? Because you're one of the few games I've seen reference of like outside like Necromunda, like, you know, a DM is not a bad idea, especially when you describe some of the crazier ploys from the time period, like stampeding cattle, very blazing saddles approach. Like let's just run cattle through the town. Um, so how would you describe the campaign feature and your snowball effect or your counter to it, which I liked? So, um, actually, Sam, do you want to handle that? Um, you can, you can take this one. So, like, the uh, the way we wanted um, a couple things. We wanted something that made it clear you're here for a reason. And these small unit engagements, there you, you guys are fighting here for a reason and you've chosen to engage because you can get something out of it. So there's always an objective. Um, and the objective, if you, uh, there's two victory points you can get over the game. One for preserving more than uh, 50% of your forces, or more so they're, you know, you didn't lose half your guys, and one for achieving the objective. Um, and for every victory point you achieve, you get a card that you add to your, uh, to your warband out of those three decks that you chose. So let's say, you know, and you can make this as narrative or as specific as you want or as kind of abstract. Like you can say, you know, before the game, we are playing, I, I want, I'm trying to destroy your supply, your powder supplies. So if I win this, I'm going to take the, um, take the thieves in the night card from the scenario deck. And which means I get to deprive you of one logistics card, like your guns next game. Um, or we're fighting over a Brit, uh, you know, this one secret passage where I can then outflank you next game. Um, but yeah, as you win, you add cards to your warband. Um, and that means you then have access to more. But just because I have a 16, a, a warband with 16 cards in it total, um, because I, I, I trounce, maybe we start, we start with 10, I trounce you, I have now 12. You still only have 10 because you lost all your guys and you didn't get the objective. In the next game, we still have, we're fighting to a no specific number of cards. So either we fight to the lower number of cards or we fight to like the number of cards I have. But the player with fewer cards gets to draw, uh, choose two cards from the scenario deck. Because like realistically, in this kind of small unit context, you always have the possibility of withdrawing, even in larger battles. They spent a army spent a lot of time withdrawing until both thought they had the advantage. 
you don't think you're having the advantage, you're not going to fight. You're going to move away. If you don't have the advantage and you can't move away, it's no longer a fight. It's a massacre. Um, and those aren't interesting games. So it gives you that opportunity. So you're not going to have the more the more time or the Necromunda effect of like half the people win their first games, half the people lose. And then the people who are losing just get like completely stomped for the rest of the campaign. Okay. Because uh, I did like your comment in there of if you had a smaller force, you'd never take on a larger force in the yeah. rule book. So you'd set the scenario of like, well, I'll just wait for less of you guys to go to the bar and I'll deal with you then. Or you'll go like, okay, we have fewer people, but most of their guys yeah, have guns. <laughs> yeah. Most of their guys have guns and it's raining. And, you know, they're also drunk. And they're off. That one officer obviously hates the other officers. They just had a fight. So I think they're just they're in such a bad situation that that fact those factors cancel out our, our fewer numbers. You know, like the way to think of the cards and how we balance games for us isn't like, you know, the, the, the gold cost of having those guys show up or whatever. It's like the factors that are going through a commander's head when they choose to fight or not fight, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, now, with this game, do you have a co-op or solo play option? We're working on a solo play yeah. option. Okay. If people want to come and volunteer to work, uh, to try out the solo option, they can contact us. We're, we're, we're play testing it now. Um, Right. That's a that's something that we're very we're very interested in. It's just kind of like a question of where we put our design time. Okay. So you have your core game right now. Um, this is the point where we discuss uh, what you have the rule books. That's actually free for download right now. So I got my copy. Um, but what products are you selling and how can someone get their hands on it so right now we have um uh the, the website masterstroke games where you can order all of our um products um we also have a u.s distributor uh phalanx consortium which has currently um all the cards so we have five nation decks swiss condottieri Spanish, Landsknecht, and French. And then we have um, the two decks that, e and then we have the character decks. And one is Saints and Sinners with Dogs of War and Fires of Faith. So you're dastardly mercenaries and you're religious zealots. And then you have, you know, um, Dawn of a New Age with um, Renaissance Man and Born to Battle, or you're kind of like, you know, Bretonian knights, um, which the French just didn't know that. They just they they followed the script. Um, um. So and then you have the uh, scenario deck, which allow which has all those things like you know, it's you're fighting in a the one building is crumbling. Some of your guy those guys are hungover. Um, you know that guy can't you can't kill that guy because he's friends with someone powerful. All those kind of like um 
different factors that influence or, you know, it's a night attack. The guys aren't aware, blah, blah, blah. All those things that, you know, you are, are factors that are usually scenario specific in games, but you can just take as part of your army building in this. Um, so, yeah, that, that you can get all of those. And then also we have um, like a, uh, a starter pack uh, on the main website that gets you kind of speci special dice tokens, rule book, um, four decks, and, you know, um, kind of uh, the paper rule book and, you know, some some um, kind of uh, player reference sheets. So we have a, a, a bunch of different options and all the, the decks, it's not a, a, you all you technically need is one nation deck. But, you know, if you want a little bit more, the starter pack gives you that. All right. So... Going forward, how are you looking to expand the game? Because you've made some hints about you'd like to take it everywhere, um, different nation decks, um, but also uh, temporally. So, I mean, it, from the date you picked, if you rolled it back 60 years, that's what Sir John Hawkwood and his English mercenaries yeah. rolling around Italy. But if you rolled it forward 60 years, you've got like some of the worst fighting of like the Reformation fallout there um and your rules would actually fit uh because i don't know as you look to expand this game are you hurt by the fact that there's not a lot of like hollywood material because when you think of like this small unit fighting i keep going back to dama and like the three musketeers mm -hmm. of like barroom brawls storming the castle walls to have your private meeting amongst the hujano um so how are you looking to expand this game because like because you made that point of like your time in development with the solar rules is there's a finite amount of time and time only flows in one direction. I'll repeat that again for all listeners. Time only flows in one direction. I I've had to read yeah. letters about how it doesn't. So <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so the currently um we're gonna be at salute. We got asked to go to salute and help um play a campaign game on a three by four meter model of the town of Gradara as it was during the 1446 uh, siege where the Malatesta who were like the Boltons of the period were fighting the Sforzas who were who are basically like the um uh oh the Lannister the Lannisters of the time um over a really specific a really uh crucial you know mountain stronghold uh, and then the Dukes of Urbino, who are basically the Star kind of like Starks, were also helping the Lannisters. And so it got very messy there. And that's where the, you have this, you know, um, magic right to silence the bombards. So we got asked to do this. So we went, and there's cavalry raids are a big part of the siege. So we went, okay, so I guess all those things jump the queue. Um, so now uh, we're going to be playing that game at Salute. So if anybody's there, they can join in. Or if anybody wants to be one of the players there, they can write us um so we're going to be doing a whole siege campaign with a lot of kind of like cool nifty stuff going on um but after that since we have to develop all the, these deck the cavalry and siege decks and gradara scenario deck for this after that we're going to do a kickstarter for if people if there's enough interest for us to do a print run um of those decks for the larger community we're going to do it i, I don't think there's going to be much of a problem with that uh, I think there's enough interest there, but it's just like for us, it helps get make establish that. 
there is and how much to print. And then uh, ideally we can start doing stretch goals of where to expand next. You know, yeah, I like, so there's, uh, we were, before the Gradara took, took, um, took precedent, we were starting to already look into, um, you know, um, War of the Roses. But yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that um, we a lot of directions. You know, then once War of the Roses is done, or there's also like questions like piracy in the in 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 the Mediterranean with the Knights of Saint John and Rhodes and Barbary pirates and Ottomans, and then there's kind of like spookier stuff maybe out you know towards the Hungarians and the Wallachians or things might get a bit weird and there's, you know, free cities, robber knights versus German militias all the way over to, you know, conquistadors. There's a lot of stuff we can do, as we said, but it's, again... I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest. I was waiting for you guys to say Hanastic league. Yes. If you ever, if you ever wanted yeah. to imagine Coca-Cola and Dynecore finally joining forces. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the 13 years war between the Hanseatic league and the, you know, and, and, and the, the German order, the Hussites. Uh, at the moment, the core rules and the like the Condigieri deck and the Swiss and the French can easily go, you know, to you know, for to 1440s and arguably 1300 if you just go like, let's take fewer guns. Um it does all work because kind of armor and weapons kind of stay about in lockstep um as far as effect uh relative effectiveness over that time period um the Landsknecht and the spanish kind of are more post like 1492 onwards than than um rather than before because the spanish deck has a lot of tercio mechanics you can go slightly earlier if you just don't use the tercio style cars all right uh so one of the things talked about is going through your book I'm looking at the pictures, where did you get your models? Are those all Perry miniatures? Because I started Guilty. looking. Okay, because I started looking up, and like, where would I get these models in 28 millimeter, not 25? It's all Perry's. Yeah, okay. it's almost all Perry's. It seemed they had the best collection for what you were describing there, because when you look at the models collection, heavy focus on Lanchkinet. Heavy. Yeah. I was like, well, what about? some of the Spanish and Ottomans and you know Germans who weren't Lanschkinecks and it's just like no Lanschkinecks yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, all yeah. that existed in this time period yeah so like um, at Perry Perry's for like your for your um, for your Swiss your Italians and your French Perry's are great they give you everything and you get basically four or five war bands for the for like 30 bucks you know you, like you can do a whole bunch you, you know you an entire club can start playing off one parry box and a, and a couple decks um and then if you go into spanish foundry uh, uh not foundry um war games atlantic does um doors, which work quite well for this um and then for Landsknecht's Warlord does uh, a box with pike and gunners in it um, that works really well. And then uh, there's um, uh, a, a couple other um, 
couple other ones that you can find on our website. If you go on our website, you'll find links to all the models that we use and suggestions on which decks to which models to use for which decks. So now here's the question with uh, the return of Warhammer, the old world, whenever the empire box comes out, do you see, do you see that as good for your game? Because all of a sudden it takes a lot of models themed for that period and then distributes them globally and says, hey, would you like to play a skirmish game? Exactly themed for how those models looked. Yeah, um, I, I think, well, we already had quite, like, you know, we had a lot of playtesters going, like, I don't have 15th century models for doing a Taconda Jerry, but I do have Skaven. Um, so, like, we had quite a few, like, you know, people subbing in different Warhammer races for different... Um, different decks and having fun with that and Condor Cherry for Skaven was gen gen generally tended to be the favorite the favorite switch up um but yeah no these uh, the game is totally playable as uh, with with Warhammer models for doing Warhammer things um we like every now and then in that we in our discord we have like oh, oh okay so how would you build Godric and Dick Felix with these decks um, or you know, as people, because you know, we're, we we all love our we I, we love history, but we also love you know all the universes. So, um, and everybody's all ha all the players in the Discord have basically admitted it that yes, they're using the game partly to you know build up their dogs of war or you know this or that Warhammer uh, army to play skirmish with as they do it. So, um, you know, we we all we all love that stuff. So it it, it works definitely. So if you if you're you know if your store doesn't want to carry parries, but uh, wants to pay, pay uh, carry um, carry uh, GW. That's fine. On the other hand, y you know you can either pay for a GW box of uh, of um, you know Empire for how many zillion dollars for like three models, or you could get like thirty six plastics from the sculptors who used to do the GW stuff for like thirty bucks. Well, that I didn't know if that was part of the uh, value proposition here of like Games Workshop. As far as this recording, there's a community that wants that Mordheim game and yeah. feel. Your description of Rome and the way the gang structure works seems to fit that Mordheim minus the toxic magic. Um, so there is syphilis. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, that episode. Of the Borgias, <laughs> where they discuss that, it's like you know what, got gun in the mouth right there. Um, but the idea of reskinning your game, um, because that can actually be a value of like, hey, we're a historical game, but if you change a couple words here, it's actually the basis for like some of the empire cities. So you could actually oh, yeah. have a club play in an empire city because they're just German oh. cities, different names. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. I mean, like. We run on basically the same software as Old World. It's just you know we we, we scaled it back to the original code rather than the fluff. Then <laughs> then the, the, you know it's like so yes you can just mod it and change the skins on everything and all of a sudden the game works the same. All right. Uh, I'm sorry, Sam. You were going to say something. No, no. I was just going to say that yeah, absolutely. You can um, set seven different Old World races, and there's enough things going on like. You 
you'd be hard pressed to say if it was a Warhammer short story or a historical uh, story of um, one guy had in the uh, city of Stettin, I believe, had a pet monkey, which he trained to do a bunch of tricks until a Warhammer, I know I was talking Warhammer, a uh, lens connector walks in, sees his silver belt buckle, and the monkey uh, sees the silver belt buckle, goes wild, and starts going around the city uh, with a knife, threatening people uh, until his owner has to corner the monkey and in a saving private ryan style tearful scene kill his own monkey um it's insane um this is an actual historical account and you can absolutely build it into uh into your scenarios so well we don't have the monkey card yet that'll have to wait for the free scenario (laughs) (laughs) first first we have to get that kickstarter out but (laughs) <laughs> well, if you guys ever start making your own uh, models, their monkey with a uh, archivist would, yes. <laughs> would be hilarious. Um, so I would like to wrap up on your Kickstarter. So I'm watching it, waiting for launch. Um, but I always ask, what are you putting on the Kickstarter and why Kickstarter? What's the thought behind there? Because I've interviewed multiple company owners and designers, and there's that either... I hate that I have to use Kickstarter or I won't use Kickstarter. Where do you so let's just put that Kickstarter question out to you? I think like we um we launched the first eight decks, which was in hindsight, go launching with eight decks w- was a bit insane. But um in a, in a lot of ways we're glad we did it. Um but we're going. Uh, the idea was always to probably eventually it would have to go to Kickstarter, but we wanted like a year of with no Kickstarter to make sure our production was lined out, our distribution was lined out. You know, all the kinks were kind of out. We were used to doing everything, and you know, we had a bit more freedom. Um, we have, you know, we have a larger, uh, larger player base now that you know can help help us with things and give eyeballs on the stuff. And now we're like, Kickstarter does give a certain amount of visibility. Hopefully, you know, like, knock, you know, never want to curse yourself by saying something, getting too excited. Um, but generally, Kickstarter adds marketing value. And the other thing is, we're, we're, we, we have a lot of decks. We're a lot of deck, and we like making decks, but stocking, we, we can't end up in a situation where we're trying to stock. 40 different decks that's just insanity so some decks may you know you know we some deck if if the decks go well then we know to keep them if the kickstarters like goes out of their mind for siege deck then siege deck stays but if nobody wants the cavalry decks we may have to see about that you know you know if if everybody wants scots great if nobody wants scots then there'll be a kickstarter only thing because then we know that you know we'll make a print run based on the Kickstarter. When that sells out, that sells out. So that's the current current thinking. Um, and you know we'll make that clear based on and and during the Kickstarter, like a certain threshold means certain things stay. Um, but we need we, we are a small company. We need to make certain size print runs in order for this to be make any sense for both the customer and us. So, you know, we can't just, you know, our day jobs are, are, are film, horse training and teaching fencing, you know, um, but we're not exactly rolling in dough. So um, 
we that ability to kind of have the stuff have the upfront money before we press print um everything is done before we go to kickstarter we everything's ready we just have to send the money to the to the to the um printing company um it just gives us that say that financial safety and that safety in knowing what people want so the idea of print on demand i know that exists for cards and for books so i think of like snarling badgers majestic 13 of where you go to what is it war games vault and you can get the book but you go to another site and they do print on demand decks do you see that as a workaround for some of the uh, stocking and production issues? We're looking at it. Um, problem tends to be, uh, from the places we've looked at at least, um, and, you know, things may change. And if someone has a brilliant idea, I don't know, the place does that place that does it really reasonably, that it's like the places we've looked at, it could end up being that just for one deck, you know, you end up paying... 40 bucks and all those 40 bucks goes to the print on demand not to us so mm. um as also like what level what you know we also want to have good quality cards so it's we're looking at it we may go to print and demand for 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 some decks but um it'll be a lot of playing things by by ear and seeing what places are willing to give us decent prices on those kind of things yeah so i have to admit mostly now what i do is most cards come in like the PDF versions of the books for a lot of independent games. And so that is the destiny for most uh, magic land cards. You cut them out and then you glue them on like <laughs> your uh, mountains. Like, well, there's, here's a really solid card. You now have something glued onto your face there. Um, but that's right. That's kind of like the, the home home shop uh, modification yeah. there. Right now, the generally, if you go to us, you can get playtesting decks for free. Decks that are in the playtesting phrase, mm -hmm. if you contact us, you'll get those for free, um, provided you know you stay in contact, play with us, tell what's going, tell us what's going on, and you know, stay in contact. But um, the produce produce decks at the moment, we're not really looking at doing um, just you know releasing PDFs to print out. Um, just also from the point of view that you know as an indie you have to be very careful and at how people see your product um you know i i i know if i saw something being played on just like you know bits of printed paper i wouldn't see it as a product in the same way i would if i saw the cards if that makes sense oh, if I I saw yeah so um but yeah, we also want accessibility, so you can get um, print out warbands to try on the website. There's a tutorial mission on the website that you can print out and play, where you have all the tokens that you need, and also standees even to print out and play with um, for the starter. And then you have to start uh, trial warbands, and the web the rules are free for now if you um, to go download. So accessibility is important to us. We just want to be careful with how it how the game gets presented to new eyes and that it has the that the that people see it on the terms that i think that i that are you know it doesn't get dismissed as kind of another 
war game kind of a war games vault pdf that was done in a couple months with like one or two play tests which we've all had those they're great but they're not quite the same thing as a real product okay yeah, absolutely uh if anyone has any questions uh about the about the system or about where we want to go then we we're always on discord on our server just ask questions there every saturday we have a virtual game meetup where we have um all of our decks are uploaded to um a virtual tabletop on roll 20 and we play a couple games on saturdays uh you can always ask other people in the discord if you want to try something out before uh, another time so always open yeah so you can yeah you that's also the roll 20 module um you can also get on roll 20 or just join the games if you want to try a new warband or try, try a new deck before you buy it you can always you know come on, learn to play the game from us or the other veterans, try out a few new warbands or new uh, deck options and before you buy. We we want to make sure that people have a chance to, you know, know what they're getting into and stuff. And then when we provide a product, that the product is actually good. Outstanding. Well, do you have anything else you want to add before we uh, wrap up this episode? Last chance. Uh and I'll, I hope to have you on again, especially as you expand north and west in your gaming. Yeah, no, um, I think that just thanks for having us on. And like, if people want to get involved, if people are like, oh, my God, I really would love to do a World War II mod or something, which I think World War II mod probably work for it as well. We've done some stuff, played around with some stuff or, you know, like I would really like to start working on playtesting or starting work on fantasy stuff if you want to get involved help we love we love having you know more stuff this is just a way for us to kind of you know, do things with friends and help find people um so you know you're more than well ha happy to um contact us if there's something that you really want to do okay i so you made a comment there about expanding so i don't know if any of you are fans of the old uh golden harvest um productions in hong kong the old martial arts films from like the 60s um, oh the snake and eagle shadow yeah yeah, yeah. but mm -hmm. i mean a lot of those are just the fencing houses of italy and germany but with martial arts so your description of like a guy taking a pole arm and running into a crowd of people i think that was in a couple different movies so yeah yeah, yeah if you yeah. are far enough master east, decks yeah. Fencing master decks are are also something in production. We actually have a couple of those in the that can be play tested on on the website. So if you want your Lichtenauer, your Bolognese fencing school, your Fiore, you know, yeah, and that that mm -hmm. there's stuff there that if people want to play it. Yeah, speaking of, sorry, I know we're I know we're going on, but uh, shout out to a great researcher in the community, Joshua we Joshua Weist, I believe then is, and um, he has the Art of Arms podcast. If that's right, Jack. Yes, uh, L'Arte de la Army. He has amazing uh, descriptions uh, from exactly this period of uh, coups, um, duels between different fencing masters. It's an amazing uh, resource. So absolutely go out there and check it out. Okay, because that would be helpful because I think that's the problem when you... So you guys wrote your book in that one period there, but I'm already in my mind running this game to different places. But hmm. I know, especially for Americans, history in like some other continent gets very complex and uh, on the level of Chicago politics. And it's helpful to know where to go if you actually want to make something like really quick, like with our short attention spans of uh, 
hey, I can buy one box of parries. What could these guys look like and why would they be fighting? So, yeah, there's we're, we're doing more articles like that on the website to try and kind of get people in and um, look at it. Yeah, I, I do understand. Yeah, that is a thing that it's like not a very um, accessible period sometimes. But uh, when you start getting into it, you kind of get hooked. There's a reason why Warhammer just kind of took a lot of the stuff that that's just even surface level and it became successful because there's so much weird, weird crazy, nutty stuff. Yeah, I think a lot of people when they realize like, you know, Warhammer wasn't actually making up a lot of that stuff. Oh no 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 no! Like the um the art the, the steam the steam wagons are in some like the the Hussites. A lot of people used to think the Hussite wagons were um you know these stationary fortifications with cannons built into them. No no no. There's descriptions um from the period of how of their of you know how to maneuver your your uh armored companies of war wagons in like snake maneuvers like wrapping around formations and firing and then like kind of just doing all these moving um things uh, moving formations like splitting uh to do pincer movements with your moving um groups it's it's, it's insane like the, you this is also a fascinating period again because you don't have this uniformity yet people are trying stuff out so you have use of smoke screens use of combined arms on a unit level like combining crossbows uh pikes and halberds for these complicated maneuvers um you have a lot of like this is a because you know these are professionals and non-professionals non just figuring stuff out and trying stuff out you have everything going on it's only when like the the later after this period that the that the um dukes and kings cracked down and said no more creativity bad for business bureaucracy bureaucracy lines of guys with muskets maybe some pikes it hurts my head like you guys are getting far too creative about all this stuff you might want you know i i just spent a lot of time smacking down all these small feudal bodies and conglomerating them under my control we can't have people like starting to figure out how to do things on their own it's a bad idea like yeah. this is a very different time this all that all that freedom getting in the way of industrial centralized production exactly <laughs> all right so once we start talking about steam tanks it's, we know it's time to start wrapping up the uh, episode so uh sam and jack thank you for uh coming on the episode and for anyone out there go check out masterstrokegames.com uh yep. for force of virtue or if you're in the u.s phalanx consortium uh is the u.s distributor so thank you for coming on thank you thank you for having us